0: Now, friends, we come today to this second epistle of Paul to the Corinthians. Now, some time ago, we went through the first epistle. And that epistle was a very important one, as we made it very clear at that time, that it dealt actually with the church. If we didn't have that epistle... Actually, we'd not know very much about church government. We'd not know very much about how the church is to conduct itself in the world. But now we come to the second epistle of Paul, to the Corinthians. And I want to say some things by way of introduction today. First of all, let me confess, very frankly, that I do not feel up to it for this epistle, I said that same thing in Romans, but I say it in 2 Corinthians here. I find myself in this epistle dealing with things that only the Spirit of God can make real to us, and I have spent more time in preparation to give this series on the radio than any book of the Bible that we've come to so far in the five-year program. I have not only spent more time with this epistle, studying it afresh and anew, but the more I studied, the less I found out I knew about this epistle. And I wondered why I had not preached on it more. And I wondered why there were not more sermons on this epistle. Why well, I preached on it some, but it hasn't been given by the church the attention that it should have. Now, what we have in this epistle is, to my judgment, that which is rather difficult. I want to give you a statement that I have in our notes and outlines of this epistle, and I trust that you do have the notes and outlines for 2 Corinthians. And this is the statement that we want to make. Paul wrote 2 Corinthians shortly after he wrote 1 Corinthians, he had written 1 Corinthians from Ephesus, and he was engaged in a great ministry there. As he says, "...a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries." Well, Paul had, I believe, his greatest ministry in Asia Minor, Ephesus being the springboard and the sounding board for the gospel. And I believe that probably... The gospel covered that area in a more effective manner than it ever has in any other place at any other time. And that's what Paul meant, a great door and a factual is opened unto me. Now, because of that, he couldn't leave that ministry and go over to Corinth, where that baby church he'd started over there filled with carnal Christians, carnal Corinthians, Babes in Christ, they wanted Paul to come, they wanted attention, they wanted food, and they wanted a change, too, of garments. They were all wet, if you please. And they were crying like a baby would cry. And Paul couldn't come. And they were a little miffed and hurt by it. And so Paul wrote that first letter and told them that he would be coming later. He didn't come later and they were still disturbed. And Titus came back and brought him word. And Paul, by that time, had left Ephesus properly, gone on up to Troas. Well, let me read 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11. He says here, verse 12, "...furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I found not Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went from Thence into Macedonia. Now, when he went over to Macedonia, that is, to Philippi, why, Titus, whom he had sent to Corinth in his place, came and brought him word about the answers to some of the things that Paul had told him to do. Were they doing them? And therefore, Paul sat down and wrote this second epistle. And this is the one that we have here. Now, they were still myth. They wanted the great apostle to come and be with them. And here is where Paul actually opens his heart in a very wonderful way. To tell the truth, we find Paul here just letting us probably come to know him better personally than in any other place. Now, I want to continue to read to you what I put in my notes, and I've got away from it there for a moment. And the news, by the way, though, that Titus brought was good news, and any breach that had been between Paul and the Corinthian church was healed. Now, I'm reading. This epistle is difficult to outline, as it is less organized than any of Paul's letters but it contains more personal details. In each chapter, there's always a minor theme developed, which sometimes seems to take the place of the major theme and is generally expressed in some striking verse. This may explain the seeming difficulty in outlining and organizing this epistle. We'll note this as we consider each chapter. Now, I want to just give briefly to you the outline that we have of this epistle, because I think that's very important for us to see. In the first seven chapters, we have the comfort of God. And this is one of the most important for you and me, for it has to do with Christian living right where you and I are located today. Then wedged in this epistle are two chapters that seem extraneous, but they're not. And having talked about the comfort of God, he talks about the collection for the poor saints at Jerusalem. And the minute you mention a collection, well, that's not a comfort to a lot of the saints. And here you do not have Christian living, but Christian giving. And then... In chapters 10 through 13, believe me, Paul becomes very personal, and you have the calling of the Apostle Paul. And here is Christian guarding, Christian living, Christian giving, Christian guarding. Now, this is very important. In the first two verses, we have an introduction. And then, well, the rest of chapter 1, we have God's comfort. For life's plans. Now, let's look at this, friends, for as I said, I feel like it's difficult to rise to the high level of this epistle. And he begins on a high note. Will you listen to him? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, Paul, writing in the authority of an apostle, He's writing with all that authority. And my friends, if a man today in the ministry can't speak with authority, he ought to get out of the ministry and start selling insurance or selling gas at a filling station. Because there's no use trying to give out God's Word unless you're convinced of it yourself. And that's the weakness of the church today is there are too many men. They're not sure, the early church. When the persecution began, the first thing you remember, they said, Oh, Lord, thou art God. My friend, if you're not sure he's God, then you're not sure of anything. And then they were sure of the word of God. They rested upon it at all times. So Paul, with this authority, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and will you notice this, by the will of God. Of God my friend you don't go any higher than the will of God (laughs) you can't go any higher than that and that my friend is authority if what you are doing is by the will of God my friend there's no question in your mind if you are today in the will of God I don't care where you are how you are and what your circumstances are if you are in the will of God my friend you are in a glorious, wonderful place today, and you may even be in the best hospital he is in town. <laughs> but may I say to you, that is the proper place. I have a friend, he's a music director, and he generally begins a song service on some humorous note. And I heard him say one time, he said, now, wouldn't you rather be here than even the best hospital in town? Well... I've always laughed at that, but I've thought about it a great deal. If it's God's will for you to be in the best hospital in town, you know that's going to be the greatest place for you, my friend, if that's God's will for you. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. And then this is lovely here. And Timothy, our brother. He's your Christian brother. He's my Christian brother. Now, Paul also, when he writes to Timothy, calls him, you're my son in the faith. But when he's writing to the church, he puts Timothy right on a par with himself. And I love that way Paul has of bringing these different ones on the same plane with himself. And he says here, under the church of God, this is God's church we're talking about. I hear people say, my church today and I think that a lot of these folks that call it my church, they act like that sometimes in the church. They forget it's God's church and that it is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he purchased with his blood. And in view of the fact he paid such a price, you and I better not be cheap Christians expressing our little will in the church. And that's just about what some are saying today in the church. Cheap, 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 cheap. Well, I want to tell you, my friend, it's under the church of God. Now, it happens to be here at Corinth, and it could be in your hometown or your neighborhood. The church of God which is at Corinth with all the saints which are in all Achaia. And Paul didn't confine it to just Corinth. Paul extends it now to all Achaia, Because everywhere the gospel went in that day, these folk were witnesses. They carried it out to others. And I've gone through that land of Achaia. Beautiful country. Lovely country. Most beautiful great vineyards I've ever seen anywhere. And flowers, how beautiful they are. And I can see those early Christians steeped in sin in Corinth at one time. Paul came and the scales fell from their eyes. Light broke on their darkened souls. They turned to Christ from their sins. And then they're going out all over Achaia, witnesses for Christ. Many will to Christ. Paul's talking to them, to all the saints which are in all Achaia. How wonderful. Notice, grace be to you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's his formal almost stereotype greeting, and I've dealt with that in other epistles, and I'll not deal with it here, but just pass by to get to verse 3. But because I pass by, it doesn't mean it's not on the same lofty plane that verse 1 was, and all of this is on the same plane. When we come to verse 3, will you listen to this? We are past now the introduction. Now we have God's comfort for life's plan. Wonderful to be in the will of God, friends. I would say that's the biggest business you could be in today. Now, you may run for an office and be elected. And if that's not God's will for you, God help you. You may be president of the biggest company in the world. I guess that would be General Motors, some other company. But if it's not God's will, that'd be the worst place in the world for you to be. It'd be better that you were the janitor in the place. May I say to you, to be in the will of God. How wonderful that is. Now notice, having spoken of that, he can say, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. Oh, this is a rich verse. Now that we've come to here, will you notice? Blessed be God. Now the word here for blessed actually is praise. Praise be to God. I wonder how much we really praise Him. I found out that I'm doing a better job of praising Him since I retired than I did when I was pastor. And we ought to remember that, well, David put it like this. David says, I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. That ought to get rid of the complaining friends, of a lot of saints. Psalm 34, 1, that is, I'll bless the Lord at all times. How wonderful it is. And we are told today that we are to praise the Lord. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. How wonderful this is. Now, Paul here goes on to say, blessed be God. He's the Father, that is, that's his position in the Trinity, and God so loved the world he gave him, his only begotten Son. Now, it wasn't that he was begotten in the sense of being born, that's not the thought at all. He's the only begotten in the sense that he occupies a position that's unique. He is the eternal Son, and he's the everlasting Father. Now, if you have a father and a son like that, there never was a time when there was any begetting in the sense of being born. And it's his position in the Trinity. And God gave the Son. Blessed be God. Praise be to God. Even the Father who gave the Lord Jesus Christ for us. And now he's called the Father of Mercy. Now, I want to spend a moment here on three words, and not too much time, but just a little. One is love, one is mercy, one is grace. I've mentioned this before. So much has been said about love, and it becomes rather sloppy when I hear it spoken of, that God's saving people by love. Now, God loves you. Oh, he loves you. (laughs) You just don't know how much he loves you. It'll break your heart and my heart today if we knew how much God loves us, but doesn't save us by love. The scripture says, by grace are ye saved. Now, what is grace? Well, that means we call it unmerited favor. It means God saves you on a different basis than merit. He saves you. Yes, he loves you, but doesn't save you by love. He saves you by grace. Why? Because he's also the God of All mercies. He's the Father of mercy. Now, what's mercy? Well, mercy means that God so loved you that he provided a Savior for you. Because he couldn't save you any other way. And anything that you have today is a mercy from God. He's the Father of mercy. And he said to be rich in grace and rich in mercy. Now, do you need any mercy today? Well, if you need any money, you generally go to the bank. If you need mercy, go to the one that's the father of it. He's the father, we are told down here, of all mercies. He's the God of all comfort. You need any help today? Go to him. He's the one. And anything that you have today is a mercy from God. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve anything that I've got. And don't have too much, but what I got is a mercy from God. You know, he was merciful when he put me in the ministry even. Because you don't know me like I know myself. Now, if you knew me like I know myself, you'd turn the radio off. But wait a minute, don't turn it off. If I knew you like you know yourself, I wouldn't be talking to you, you see. I just quit right now. But you see, we today have been extended mercy. And I'm in the ministry I'm on the radio because of the mercy of God. And I hate to say this, but I have to say it. You know, I had cancer and still have it in my lungs. You know what that is? Mercy of God. (laughs) Oh, my. That's hard for me to say that. But anything that you have from God, we're going to see it in this book, that anything is a mercy. The first seven chapters here, we have all about mercy, the comfort of God. And we have it in life's plans here. And how wonderful it is. He's the Father of mercies, and he's the God of all comfort. Now, let's test this in the crucible of life. How about the acid of suffering we mentioned a while ago? He's the God of all comfort. He can comfort you in the hospital. He can comfort you at the funeral home when you've got a loved one there. He can comfort you. Any place, friends, at any time, he is the God of all comfort. Now, there is an authentic comfort, and there is a counterfeit one. I don't like people to say, oh, yes, God's permitted this to come to me, and I accept it. But they don't accept it. Oh, boy, how they rebel. Tell him, be honest with God. If you don't like it, tell him you don't like it. He wants you to, and he already knows about it anyway, and comfort can be genuine or fake. Now, the popular notion of the meaning of comfort, that it is sort of a note of weakness and sentimentality, it has with it saccharine and old lace, you know, some dear, wonderful Christian woman, mother coming and comforting you, that has its place i don't mean it, but that's not what he's talking about here i'll tell you that i know that when i was a little fella i'd fall down i was always skinning my knees my mother always wondered why she didn't put me in long pants but she never did and i was always skinning my knees and she'd kiss it <laughs> She says it's well now and you know she kidded me about that i thought it was i quit crying may i say to you that's sentiment, that's sweet, that's lovely. But you know, there came a day when I went away to school, I got discouraged and I didn't have any money. <laughs> then she talked to me. That was comfort, too. It's pretty strong manner She says, You want to be a man now, son? You must be a man. That was comfort. May I say to you that I think some people think of comfort being like I saw an advertisement on a billboard advertising whiskey. and it said Southern Comfort. Well I'm a southerner, but I never felt that was any comfort. They'll ruin a home, my friend. LSD. Some people think that's a comfort, but it's not. Now what does he mean by comfort? Well the verb is parakaleo. That means call to the side. Now, the Holy Spirit is called a paraclete. That is, he's called to the side of. And the Lord Jesus said, I'll not leave you comfortless. I will not leave you. And the word there is orphanoi. We get our word orphans from that. He says, I won't leave you orphans. I'm going to send the comforter, the paraclete to you. And he says, it's best for you that I go away. If I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I go, I'll send him unto you. Now, what is the comforter then? Will you hear me? It's not one that kisses the bruise. No, that could be part. But it's a helper, a strengthener, an advocate. One who's called to help me and to strengthen me and relieve the loneliness and assuage the grief and calm the fears. And it means help in time of Terrifying trouble, if you please. Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. Lord, be thou my helper. That's the cry of a soul that needs a comforter. And he's the God of all comfort. Now, verse 4, "...who comforteth us in all our trouble, that we may be able to comfort them." which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Now, this is the thing that is important for us to see here. It's a very wonderful, a very wonderful thing that we have a God that can comfort us in all of our trouble. Now, it's one thing to have comfort when the sun is shining, someone to pat us on our back. But my friend, what we really need is comfort in the time of trouble. And we're going to see that Paul had that. He's going to let us in on that. And that God comforted him in the time of trouble. You see, we need assurance of the presence of God in all the circumstances of life. The area of our greatest need, loneliness in the desperate hour of life, Christianity, is just a theory to many people. It's just a profession. And many professing Christians, it's just a garment to put on for special occasions. They wear it lightly. It's a stagnant ritual and an empty vocabulary. My friend, may I say to you that the proof of Christianity is how it walks in shoe leather. And it wasn't a theory with the apostle Paul. He says, He comforteth us in all our trouble, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Now, we are going to find that Paul's going to talk a great deal about the trouble that he has had and is having at this particular time, but that God comforted him at that particular time. Now, let me move on down in this section here. He says, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it's for your consolation, your comfort and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer, or whether we be comforted It is for your consolation and salvation. Now, I keep on reading. Verse 7, And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life, but we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Now, this is wonderful. May I say to you that this explains why God permits us to have trouble or to be sick. Now, Paul here says he was sick nigh unto death. Back to the matter is, he said the sentence of death was in him. I think probably the doctor told him that he would die. Now, there are others that think that what he's referring to is when in Ephesus... That mob came, and they would have torn Paul to pieces, and he would have been made a martyr. I'm not sure what experience that he is referring to here. It could be sickness. It could be that experience that he had. And he tells us that he had the sentence of death. And then he says he hath delivered us, and he does deliver us, and he trusts that he will deliver us. Now, this is quite wonderful. And this is something that ought to be practical for us today. First of all, let me say that God permits the church to suffer. And he permits Christians to suffer. And he has in mind a good reason. He has a very wonderful purpose in it all. He intends for it to work out for the good of these believers. And he intends for it to serve a good purpose So they can comfort someone else. Now, let's look at this for just a moment. You know, Paul deals with the realities of the Christian life here. He says, he hath delivered us. He does deliver us. And he says he trusts that he will deliver us. And for our hope is steadfast and in him. And he gives this experience that he's had. And Paul, on that basis, he peeled for prayer in his dark hour, and the church responded. He says, ye also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. Now, as I've already said, everything that you and I have, we have it today because of the mercy of God. And we have it for the benefit of others. Now, I don't care what it is that you have. God's given it to you that you can share it with others. He's given it to you today as a mercy. Do you have health? Well, then you have it because of the mercy of God. And he wants you to share it with others. Wealth. What about that? Youth. Talent. A gift. And wait a minute suffering also. You know, Paul can ask these most embarrassing questions here about this matter of the fact that are you suffering for Christ? Well, if you're suffering for Christ, he permits that to happen to you. Dr. Ironside tells a story about a friend of his years ago was in Vienna, and they were on a bus trip. And on that bus trip, why, some sheep got in the way of the bus. And they were held up. And the man sitting next to his friend there, why, he was annoyed by it all. Because actually, there were just two sheep dogs that were watching over and guiding and leading in all of this and hurting those sheep. And so this friend of Christian said to this man sitting next to him that is annoyed, he says, do you know the names of those two sheepdogs? And he said, Why? No, I don't know the name. He says, Do you know the name? He said, Yes, I do. We well, says, What are they? Well, he says, One of them's named Goodness and the other's named Mercy. He said, How in the world do you know that? Well, he said, I'll tell you why. He said, David said, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life. Now, he says, Goodness and mercy are following us all the days of our life. And who in the world wants two dogs yapping and barking at their heels all the time? Well, God sometimes sends us trouble, friends. Sometimes sends us sickness. And he does this in order that he might, in our lives, be able to bring out something there, you see. And it's goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life, and he has delivered us, Paul said. Now, I look back, may I be personal? I had cancer, and I'll be very frank, my doctor didn't give me much hope, but he's been delivering me, and it's amazing, and I trust he will deliver. Oh, some man wrote me, and I felt the letter was arrogant. He says, God's told me that you're going to get well, so you don't need to worry about it anymore. Well, now, I wonder, since I'm the fellow that has the cancer, why didn't God tell me that? Why didn't he tell this fellow way off somewhere? And I'm just waiting for the Lord to tell me. May I say to you, I can say with Paul, I trust he will deliver. That's all I can say. You cannot be arrogant and be boasting in a proud way. We need to walk softly. Paul here appealed for prayer. You'll notice, ye also helping together by prayer for us. And this is something that God wants to do for us, you see. And Paul appealed for prayer. And I went on radio and asked people to pray. And oh, people have been praying down through the years. And I thank God for it. But I think he's done this so we can comfort others. And it's for the benefit of others. Comfort them that are in trouble and It's been amazing how we've been able to not, just can't go to all of them, have cancer. I just didn't know so many people had it. But I have been able to contact several, not many. And I went to see a man up in the San Joaquin Valley. And he had cancer. And his wife wrote me later and says, you don't know what it meant to him. for you to come and tell how God had comforted you. Now he says, God's comforted him. Oh, my friend, we are to do this. God permits us to have trouble today. Now, it's too bad when the world speaks too well of us. We ought to be very careful. Listen to him again. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired, even of life. And that's the thing that he says here. You remember the fable that we used to read many of us years ago in our reader at school? And it was how the sun and the wind were having a contest to see who was the strongest. And the wind said he could make, there was a man going down the street with his coat on, and the wind says, I can make him take that coat off, make him remove it. And so the wind began to blow. And I tell you, it almost blew the man away. But instead of taking his coat off, he just wrapped it around him a little closer. And then the sun says, it's my time to try. And so the sun began to shine down on him. And oh, it was so warm and nice. And he took that coat off and removed it. And the sun did it. Now, you know, trouble today It won't generally take us away from God. (laughs) I tell you, when the wind begins to blow and it gets rough and tough, we immediately want to turn to our Father who can comfort us. It's dangerous today when the church has it too easy. And when Christians have it too easy and the sun is shining on them, they remove that robe of practical righteousness and they begin to compromise with the world. And that's exactly what many have done today. Now, let me move along here rather hurriedly, because this is important here. Verse 12, for our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godless sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we've had our conversation, that is, our manner of life in the world, and more abundantly to you. You see, Paul now says he can rejoice because of the fact that the testimony that had been given, and friends, it's not by our wisdom that you and I today are able to have the effect that probably we think that we should have, but actually we need to notice that it's because of the fact it's given simply, and as Dr. Ironside used to say, put the Cookies on the bottom shelf so the kiddies can get them. Now, Paul speaks here of the fact that suffering had produced this in his life, and that's what it will produce. When I was in the hospital the first time, someone sent me Alice Mortenson's little poem, I Needed the Quiet. And I think I ought to share that with you today in this particular section, he said I needed the quiet, so he drew me aside into the shadows where we could confide, away from the bustle where all the day long I hurried and worried when active and strong. I needed the quiet, though at first I rebelled, but gently, so gently, my cross he upheld and whispered so sweetly of spiritual things, though weakened in body My spirit took wings to heights never dreamed of. When active and gay, he loved me so greatly, he drew me away. I needed the quiet, no prison my bed, but a beautiful valley of blessings instead, a place to grow richer. In Jesus to hide, I needed the quiet, so he drew me aside. Oh, my friend today, and many of you are on a bed of pain, may I say to you, you're in the will of God today. That bed can become a greater pulpit than this microphone is that I'm standing before right now. Now he says to them, We write none other things unto you than that what ye read or acknowledge, and I trust ye shall acknowledge even to the end, as also ye have acknowledged us in part that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence I was minded to come unto you before, that ye might have a second benefit. Paul says, wasn't I a blessing to you the first time? And I'm coming now the second time, and I want to be a blessing to you. Now he says, and to pass by you into Macedonia, come again out of Macedonia unto you, and of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. When I therefore was thus minded, did I use lightness? Are the things that I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, that with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay? Now, Paul said this, I said I was coming before and I didn't come. Now, there was some of these enemies in Corinth were saying, well, he didn't mean it at all. He wasn't sincere. Now, what Paul is saying, I was sincere. Paul says, when I say yea, I mean yea. And when I say nay, I mean nay. And my friend, believers today ought to be that kind of folk. Not use lightness in making our appointments and our arrangements. And in the business world today, oh, how we need men and women that are Christian. That when they say something, they'll stand by it. That's what Paul is saying. But he says, but as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. We didn't talk out of both sides of our mouth. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Sylvanus and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was (laughs) yea. The gospel is yes. The gospel is positive. The gospel is something God has done for us. The gospel is what the word means. It's good news, my friend, for all the promises of God in him are yea and in him amen under the glory of God by us. You see, God means good for you, friends. I don't know where you are today or who you are, but if you today are God's child, wherever you are, God means well by you. Now notice, he says in verse 21, Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ, and hath anointed us, is God, who hath sealed us, and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Now you have here not only the faithful God, the true God, and the sure Lord Jesus, but you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And I believe very candidly that you have here in this statement at verse 21 and 22, you have here the total ministry of the Holy Spirit today. Now he says here, now he which establisheth us. Now how do you become established, if you please, Paul? You know, had written to these Corinthians and they'd been so fickle, and now. He's able to conclude that, and he says, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know your labor's not in vain in the Lord. What does it mean to be established? We believe that's the work of the Holy Spirit. First of all, the Holy Spirit convicts. He comes into the world. The Lord Jesus said he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he convicts us. And the second thing that he does, if having been convicted, we confess our sin and accept Christ as our Savior, he regenerates us, you see. And he not only regenerates us, he indwells us. And not only does he indwell us, but he baptizes us. And by the way, this expression here is quite interesting In verse 21, now he which establisheth us with you into Christ and hath anointed us is God, God who? God the Holy Spirit, if you please. And we sing sometimes safe in the arms of Jesus, especially at a funeral. Well, the word here is not safe in the arms of Jesus. Well, you're part of his body, you're put into Christ By the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you're not safe in the arms. You're safe as an arm of Jesus Christ because the chances are you may be a little finger in the body of Christ. Now, what a wonderful thing this is. And he is speaking here now of the work of the Holy Spirit. And he's using present tense. That's what he's doing for you today, friend. Convicts you and he regenerates you, and he indwells you, and he baptizes you. Now, will you notice, he says here, he hath anointed us as God. Now, this is a ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is sadly neglected today. And you will find over in First John, it's First John 2.20. And if you would turn there, and I hope you will, and read that, You will find that we have an anointing, and that anointing is the Holy Spirit, and it takes the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us into all truth, you see. We now transfer from the realm of reason to reality, from the hypothetical to the experimental, from fiction to fact. We rise from the theoretical death to actual living, now if ye then be risen with Christ. Seek those things which are above, where Christ is at the right hand of God. Now you have here, and I am going to turn and read that after all. In 1 John 2.20, But ye have an unction, that is an anointing, from the Holy One, and ye know all things. How by the Holy Spirit? Verse 27, the same chapter. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is true, and is no lie. And even as he hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Now, this is a ministry that we believe is all-important, though it is neglected. And he doesn't give you a mail-order degree. And this is not knowledge that comes gift-wrapped in a box. I think a lot of people think that. You have the Holy Spirit to teach you, Christian friend. And he alone can open the Word of God to you. That's the reason this is a miracle book. And all Christians must depend on the Holy Spirit. And the Lord Jesus said to his own, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot receive them. Not but when the Spirit of God has come, he's going to lead you into all truth. Now, that's what he wants to do is to lead you and me into all truth. Now, we have here something else that's mentioned, who hath also sealed us. That is a marvelous ministry of the Spirit. We're told, grieve not the Holy Spirit. Can you grieve him away? No, because he says, grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. And the Holy Spirit's going to deliver you someday. He sealed you, friend. And that's just the same as taking a letter down to the post office, And I've already apologized to the people at the post office, and I sure hope they're going to deliver our mail now and then get our mail to us, by the way. But if you want to make sure you register that letter, and they put a seal on it, and they guarantee they're going to get the letter through when you do that. All legal documents had that. In witness thereof I set my seal. Is the way it comes down to us from the old English. And it's a marking, a branding, a mark of ownership. And out yonder in the early days in the West, they had no fences. They branded their cattle. The Holy Spirit puts the brand on you that you belong to God. And my friend, as a little sheep of his, you're not going to get lost. Oh, you might, but he'll come find you. The Spirit of God is the one like that woman sweeping the floor Making sure that that wedding ring is going to be found. What a wonderful thing. And then, not only that, but you're given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Actually, it's this. You're given the earnest, which is the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Now, an earnest money is money that, you know, you put up. And that means more is to follow. You go and say you want to buy a piece of property, you put up so much. And when you do, that's earnest money. And it means you're going to pay some more. Now, God's given us the Holy Spirit. He says there's more to follow. What a wonderful thing. It's almost like buying on an installment plan. But it's not a down payment. Because there may be some defection in the buyer. But there's no defection in this buyer. He purchased us with his blood. Maybe some defection in us. So he puts so much down. And when he put so much down... Well, that guarantees that the saved soul will be delivered, and it means the saved soul's in escrow today. Now, God has put his Holy Spirit in every believer. He's the earnest, and he's coming to the life of the believer to bring the fullness of God to bear in our experiences. What is it you need today? You know, he's rich in mercy. He's the Father of mercies. What do you need, friends? Why don't you go and ask him? you need power? Do you need joy? Do you need wisdom? Do you need help? These are the comforts, because he comforts us. Paul knew it. He'd experienced it. And you're listening to a fellow today that knows it also because he's experienced it. Now, will you listen to him? Verse 23, moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul, that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth. Now, Paul said, if I had come when I said I would come, I would have done what I did in the first epistle. My, that first epistle is filled with correction. And Paul is stern in that epistle, as we'll see in this next chapter. And he says, if I'd come, I'd have been stern with you. But I didn't come because I wanted to spare you that. I wanted to see if you wouldn't work this out. Verse 24, not for that we have dominion over your faith. Paul said, I'm not the bishop of your soul. I'm not the one lording it over you. You have freedom in Christ, but we are helpers of your joy. For by faith you stand, he says. You'll have to stand in your own faith, my friend. And Paul says that we wanted to stay away, that you might be strengthened in your faith and you might grow. And that's one of the reasons, friends, God permits many of us to undergo certain hardships, certain difficulties in our own lives. Will you notice in chapter 2 now, verse 1, he says, But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaven." Paul said, If I to come also something else. Oh, I was discouraged with ye and I would have been in sorrow and there'd been tears in my eyes. For if I make you sorry, verse two, who is he that maketh me glad? But the same which is made sorry by me? You see, Paul didn't want to come and in his sorrow and with tears in his eyes, he'd have had them weeping. Then who is going to make Paul glad? You see, they were just both of them booed in the same handkerchief. That wouldn't have been very good, by the way. Now, will you notice? He says, and I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. Paul said, I want to come in joy. And I wanted to get word from you that you'd corrected these things. Now, had they, listen to this. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. You know, a great many folks sometimes fall out with the preacher when he preaches a message that is rather severe, a message that, I tell you, bears down on the congregation, and they think that... Maybe he ought not to do that. Well, may I say to you, he's not a faithful pastor. If he doesn't do that, I'll tell you that, my friend. Because we're told to preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. And any man that's a minister today standing in the pulpit has a tremendous responsibility to rebuke. But a lot of the saints, they don't like that, you know. And Paul says here, I did it not for any reason that I was opposed to you. It was because I loved you. My friend, a faithful pastor, shows his love by preaching the word of God as it is, and not by buttering up the congregation. Verse 5, but if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part that I may not overcharge you all. He says, sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many. So that contrariwise ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Now, let me remind you of what Paul is speaking. You remember back in the first epistle, Paul rebuked them because they were permitting gross immorality. In fact, incest in the congregation, and they were shutting their eyes to it, and yet they were running around talking about talking in tongues. Paul says, you get this matter straightened out. Well, I tell you, Paul read the riot act to him. He told them when he came there, they'd do something about it. Well, they did something about it. That is, they put this man out. They excommunicated him, and that's what they should have done. But this man then saw his sin. He confessed Came under great conviction. Now, you see, what Paul is saying here is, he says, what you do is to receive him now. You see, if the devil can't push us one way, he pushes us the other way. One way is to shut your eyes to immorality. The other is, when a person confesses their sin and turns from it, to be hard-nosed about it and not to accept that. And Paul says, wait a minute. (laughs) This man's confessed his sin, and he says, actually, what will happen, he'll be swallowed up over much sorrow if you don't receive him. He'll be overwhelmed, not only because of his sin, but because you won't receive him. So now put your arm about Ye that are brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fall, ye that are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, lest you also be tempted, because what he did, you could do, you see. So the man is to be brought back in the fellowship. Well, what happened? Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it for your sakes, forgave I it in the person of Christ. Now he says here, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. And I wonder today if we are ignorant of his devices. Now, in the first letter, will you notice, he told them that they must not tolerate evil. They must put it away. Now, in this second epistle, Paul says, the man's repented. The man has come and acknowledged his sin. Now, You ought to forgive him. (laughs) You see, the devil sometimes, you know, gets us to shut our eyes to gross immorality. I wish I had time to tell you about how that is today. I know one preacher that has had woman trouble in three different churches, and every church he went to knew his record, but they took him. Why? Shutting their eyes to gross immorality, and they've hurt the cause of Christ when they did that. But wait a minute. Suppose he had repented, really. Turn from his sin, which he did not. Then what should they do? Forgive him. Now, the opposite of that is there are a lot of, old stiff-backed fundamentalists today. They won't forgive anything. My friend, that can be the work of the devil as well as shutting your eyes to immorality is not to forgive the one. And that's where Satan gets advantage of a great many Christians. They're so unforgiving. (laughs) My, I tell you, There are two things you don't hear much today in our conservative churches. You don't hear people asking for forgiveness or saying they're wrong. And you don't hear many people forgiving folk. They have an unforgiving spirit. My, this is important for us to see. Now he says, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord. What'd Paul do? He stayed there and preached the gospel because that was the will of God for him. You see, Paul, instead of being fickle, he was faithful. He was faithful to God. And when he was faithful to God, when the door was open in Troas, in the city of Troy, he stayed there and preached the gospel unto them. But may I say to you, he says here, verse 13, I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went from thence unto Macedonia. Paul says, even when I was preaching the gospel, I was grieved in heart because Titus hadn't come to bring me word concerning you people in the city of Corinth. Now, Paul makes it very clear to them here that he was in God's will when he went to Troas and didn't come on to them at all. But he was waiting for Titus to come and Titus didn't come. He went over to Philippi in Macedonia Titus came and brought word at that time from the Corinthians that they had dealt with this and that the man had now repented, turned from his sin. That was the way it was to be dealt with. Now we come to what some have called the power of the ministry. You can call it anything you want to, but I say it's part of the greatness of the ministry. And I rejoice today to be able to preach the kind of a gospel and the kind of a word of God that we have to give. Oh, listen to this. This is grand and glorious that we're dealing with here. I begin reading now verse 14 of chapter 2. Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place." Now, the picture here is a dramatic picture, and it's a great picture. He says here that preaching the gospel is like leading a triumphal entry. (laughs) Oh, how great this is. And the picture goes back to Rome. You see, one of the Roman emperors or one of the great generals would go out onto the frontier, probably up in Europe where your ancestors and mine, where that is most of us, or probably way to the far east or down in Africa especially in North Africa. And they would have victory after victory. Most of the Roman generals and emperors had victories. And they would come back in and there would be a great triumphal entry into Rome. And it is said that sometimes a triumphal entry would begin probably in the morning and go way into the night. And some of them that began in the afternoon would go all night long. And you would see... The Roman emperors, as they were bringing in the booty and the things they'd captured, and then the people that were taken. And up in front would be the people that are going to be released. They've been captured, but they're going to be free, set free because they're going to become Roman citizens. Then there are those in the background that are to be executed. And that's the picture. But there's something else here. And in these triumphal entries, they always burned incense. You see they're burning incense to their God that they gave credit for the victory. And you would have all the way through the triumphal entry, incense burning, sometimes almost creating a cloud you couldn't even see the parade as it went by. Now, what he's saying here is something wonderful. Now, thanks be unto God. Which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. Wonderful, friends. You can't lose when you're in Christ. Can't lose. And he maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Oh, the burning of the incense, the sweetness of it. In every place, Paul says, I triumph. Well, wait a minute, Paul. We know you had wonderful success in Ephesus. But you didn't do so well in Athens. Do you feel like you triumphed in both places? Oh, yes. He says, he always causes us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor, the sweet incense of his knowledge by us in every place. Now, how does he cause you to triumph when many or any don't turn to Christ? Are you having a victory then? Oh, Paul says you sure are. Listen to this. For we are under God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. You mean to tell me that we're a sweet savor? Well, yes, the triumphal entry had people up in front going to be set free, those in the back going to be executed. All of it's triumphal entry. Now, wait a minute. How can that be, Paul? Will you listen to him? For we are under God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved. And in them that perish, those that are be judged. It's the triumphal entry, you see. To the one, we are the savor of death unto death. And to the other, the savor of life unto life. And then he says, who's sufficient for these things? And he doesn't answer it right here, by the way. But he's overwhelmed by it. The greatest privilege in the world, Christian friend today, is to give out the word of God. There's nothing like it. I'm not going to run for president. I'd just like to make that announcement so none of you put me up as a candidate because I'm not going to run. I wouldn't be president. Must be something wrong with folk who want to be president with all the problems and many of them impossible. May I say to you, but it's glorious today to give out the word of God. You know why? He always causes us to triumph. Here is something that I... Did when I was pastor in Los Angeles many times. We very seldom went to a Sunday. We didn't see someone turn to Christ. And sometimes it was a great many someones. But actually, we saw more on the Thursday night service. Bible study turned to Christ over the years. And we gave no invitation then. But the Spirit of God was working. But now suppose that you preach the gospel and multitudes accept Christ. That's wonderful, isn't it? Now, you can see the triumph there. We are savor of life under those that are saved. But wait a minute. What about that crowd that doesn't save? Well, we are savor of death under that crowd, too. They've heard the gospel. And this is the thing that I often said. I said, now, if you are here today and you've heard the gospel and you've rejected it, you go out from here and not accept Christ as your Savior, I'm probably the worst enemy you'll ever have. I have not been your friend today, because you can't now go into the presence of God and say, you never heard the gospel. You heard it, and you have rejected it. It's your responsibility, and you're in the triumphal procession because of the fact, friends, there are some that are saved, some that are lost. Some are to be set free. Others are to be executed, if you please, judged, if you please. And they're all in the triumphal entry. It's wonderful to give out the Word of God today. And I'd say that to you if you're listening today and you're not saved. We find many people listen to the broadcast, not saved. And I'm not your friend. I'm sorry. I'm really your enemy because you could never go in. But you are now in the triumphal entry. You're not to be set free. You're to be executed. You're to be judged. And regardless... You're in the great triumphal entry, Jesus Christ, because he's going to win, friends. May I say to you, Paul says in Ephesians, when he ascended, he led captivity captive. And he also said in Philippians that every knee must bow, every tongue will confess. You've got to bow to him someday. Regardless, he'll either be your savior, be your judge. Oh, this is a glorious passage. And no wonder Paul says, well, who is sufficient for these things? And I agree with him. Who is sufficient for these things? My friend, this is a tremendous passage of Scripture. Now, will you notice? He says here, To the one, we are the savor of death unto death, to the other, the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? And today, the incense is ascending, the word is going out, and we are a savor of life, and we are a savor of death. Why? Because he says here, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. But as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. And may I say to you, the incense is going up. And we're doing this in sincerity, friends. And we're not corrupting the word of God. We're giving it to you just as we see it. And as the Spirit of God... And the answer to who's sufficient for these things, I'm not. Well, my friend, those are sufficient who are not making merchandise of the Word of God, not corrupting it, not distorting it in making merchandise of it, but in sincerity. Why, in the sight of God, we're speaking in Christ. Now, may I say to you, this is the entire plan of the Christian ministry It's not to corrupt the Word of God. It's not to make merchandise of it, but to give it in sincerity. May I say what a wonderful thing this is.